a small town in West Virginia. A car on fire, and a body that doesn't have any business being there. Today we're discussing the mystery man on fire of Shinston, West Virginia. Shinston, West Virginia, home to around 3,000 residents in 1980. It's about 45 minutes south of Morgantown, West Virginia, and about an hour 45 from Pittsburgh. By all signs, it's a lovely town to this day, a great place to raise a family. But what would it take for a small town like this to grip the imagination of the entire nation? It was the early hours of the morning on August 17, 1981. A passerby had phoned emergency services to report that they had passed by a car on fire by the side of the road on Drain Hill. Single vehicle. No persons were reported nearby. The local fire department was dispatched. It would be easy to assume that the fire had resulted from a mechanical failure of some form and the driver had simply left the vehicle on foot to find assistance. Upon arrival, the fire department found a 1980 Dodge Omni still on fire. First responders soon discovered an unwelcome sight. The vehicle was not empty. Once on scene, Fire Chief Jim Jarrett had his men in action fighting the flames back so that they could gain access to the vehicle. The person was sitting in the passenger seat and had remained upright. Once the flames had been knocked down sufficiently, Chief Jarrett's men were able to remove the person from the vehicle and get them a safe distance before attempting to resuscitate. Though the men had acted quickly and valiantly, there was no life left to save in this body. Upon further investigation, it soon became clear that no amount of speed in their response or any change in their approach could have changed that. Jerry Miller was 40 years old and an entrepreneur. The oil crisis of 1973 had come and gone, and towards the later part of the decade, Americans were looking to get back on the road. So in 1977, Jerry purchased Royal Chrysler, which sold and repaired new and used vehicles. 1977 saw the biggest year for the automotive sales industry since the early parts of the decade. It seemed like Jerry picked a perfect time to hop on the gravy train. And uh, by all reports, he did very well his first year. Then, in 1979, the second oil crisis hit. This time it was more of an echo compared to 73, but Americans still had strong memories, memories from early in the decade. Long lines at the pumps, fights breaking out, just general c turmoil when that was associated with anything to do with their vehicles. Car sales plummeted, and they would not start to raise up again until the middle parts of the decade. Things were not looking good for Jerry's dealership, and it was having a very negative impact on his home life as well. Things were looking bad. He needed an out. Back at the scene, the fire was out, and emergency personnel had combed the area trying to find some trace of the driver. No luck. Officer Austin Jaggy had arrived on scene, and he uh, decided to run the car's license plate. 
The car belonged to one Paul Gatiss. Could be Gaddis. I'm going with Gatiss for now. Officer Jaggy brought this to the attention of Jim Jarrett, the fire chief. Now, Chief Jarrett knew Paul Gatiss. And upon hearing the news, he was a little stumped because he knew that the person in that car was certainly not Paul Gatiss. Examining the contents of the vehicle brought about a few more surprises. There were two five-gallon gas, gas cans in the back of the car. They also found a couple of bottles of whiskey. So, early theories may have been that uh, this fella had decided to steal the car, drive out here, have a few drinks, and, uh, you know, call today. But, uh, they weren't for a few more surprises. They discovered when they'd opened up the person's shirt that the individual had some significant surgical stitching going down their chest. And it was some serious work he had done. Things were becoming more and more unusual for this small town. And uh, further investigation led to another surprise. In the back seat of the vehicle, there were two IDs. They belonged to Jerry Miller. Jerry's business was on the rocks and so was his marriage. That makes for a heavy burden to bear in a small town where word spreads pretty quickly. So what's a man to do? Just ride off into the sunset? That's not going to cut it. People are going to come looking. The government's going to come looking. So, what options do you have? Let's fake your own death. Seems like a reasonable idea. But, uh, they didn't have a better plan. Seeing Jerry Miller in his current condition struck Officer Jaggy. The police officer had been on his standard patrol earlier that night when he passed by Royal Chrysler. Four hours earlier. It was around 11 p.m. And uh, the police officer noticed that the lights were still on at the dealership. It was well after business hours. Now, Shinston was a small town. Still is. And uh, Officer Miller, Officer Jaggy doesn't have his hands too full with keeping the peace. It's definitely not a bad thing. So, seeing the lights were on, there were some concerns that there could be a break-in taking place. But, in any case, no reason not to check it out. That's what Officer Jaggy's job is. So, he goes and knocks on the door. Jerry Miller answers. He discovers that Jerry's there just uh, waiting on a late shipment of vehicles to arrive. Some accounts do note that Jerry's dealership had not received any shipments of vehicles in several weeks at this point, so, hey, sticking around to make sure you get your product doesn't seem too unreasonable. So, presumably, uh, Officer Jaggy just uh, wishes Jerry a good, good evening and uh, goes about his merry way. Now, later, Officer Jaggy does, did recall that there was a lady in the office and there was also a man sitting with his back to the door. The body was taken to a local hospital for further examination. It was discovered that the stitching was not from a recent surgery. It had actually been a post-mortem examination. So, 
this person hadn't died this evening. That much was clear. This person was already a corpse. That led to many questions. Most of them that didn't have any good answers. Was this a prank? Were they in some kind of Alfred Hitchcock film? This was much more than a sleepy small town in West Virginia really felt equipped to handle. Joy was taken from the body. Accounts differ on whether that really pointed towards anyone. Some accounts say Jerry had left some of his uh, jewelry on the placed some of his jewelry on the body to help his case. Some say that there was a necklace that did not belong to Jerry on the body. It's a little unclear. Fingerprints were ran. Funeral homes in the area were contacted to see if they were missing any occupants. And uh, they were just kind of running in circles for a little while there. Paul Gatiss, the owner of the vehicle, was contacted, and he informed police and investigators that he had dropped off his vehicle for repairs, so the vehicle was not in his own possession that night, so not really a big surprise there. The car lot was checked. No break-in was apparent. Nothing seemed to be tampered with. Finally, the fingerprints came back. They belonged to one Timothy Fitzwater. $300. It's equal to just under $1,000 in today's money. That's what it cost Jerry to have his girlfriend's brother, John, along with his friend, Ron, agree to dig up a grave. Now, that's a fair amount of money for a couple guys to split for just a few hours' work. But once they got to it, and they got down to the casket, the price started seeming just a little on the low side. So, it was those two along with Jerry there at that scene, and uh, they started arguing back and forth for quite some time. Finally, Jerry had to go down to the casket himself and pop her open. And I guess once they got to that point, it wasn't so bad because he was able to convince the other two men, Ron and John, to go down there and hoist the body up themselves. Now, it's unclear how long the body remained in their possession from this point to the point of actually uh, staging the accident. But there are multiple sources that do note that the group had taken to calling the body George in the meantime. George, George, George. Getting closer to the night of the accident, one of the reverse pallbearers, Ron, mentioned earlier, he'd seen enough of George by this point. So they had to bring in another accomplice to help with the grand finale of their plan. Harry had stayed at the home of Brenda, Jerry's girlfriend, and her brother John, and he must have seemed like the trustworthy type. So, Jerry chosen a spot on Drain Hill, had a nice steep slope off the side for the car to roll down, and uh, Harry was supposed to drive the car up to the location. Now, and uh, Jerry and John would come up and assist with the final deed, of course. But somehow in this last stage of this entire debacle, Harry managed to arrive at the scene far earlier than John and Jerry would. His nerves were getting to him, He'd been driving around and now sitting there with a deceased person next to him. Some accounts, he, accounts say he took some uh, Vicks Vapor Rub to help help him with any odors that he was dealing with. 
And uh, so, tired of waiting, he decided to get things underway. He prepared the two five-gallon gas cans that were in the back of the car, put the fin finishing touches on the two bottles of whiskey that were fashioned up similar to Molotov cocktails, I suppose. And uh, at this point, uh, you can say Harry learned that he had a poor understanding of the volatile nature of gas fumes, especially in the confined spaces of a passenger vehicle. So, when Harry went to set things alight, it blew back right in his face. Not a full-on explosion, mind you, but it was enough to burn his face significantly, parts of his upper chest, and it caught his shirt on fire. It was shortly after this that Jerry and John arrived, and they discovered their accomplice writhing on the ground. They saw the car just sitting there on the side of the road, not over the side of the hill as planned. And, uh... George was still in the passenger seat. He wasn't in the driver's seat like uh, planned, so... Things weren't looking good. Plan to really come together. And now they got to celebrate by taking their pal Harry to the ER. Timothy Fitzwater passed away at 21 while riding his motorcycle in Pennsylvania. This was nearly a month earlier. Now, Mr. Fitzwater had known Jerry Miller to some degree. His family actually rented the apartments that were above the car dealership. He was buried in a neighboring county. After investigators learned of this, they took a trip over and uh, discovered that the ground had been recently disturbed. They ordered the casket to be exhumed so they could check things further, and once they did, they popped her open and all they found inside were an empty beer bottle, empty pack of cigarettes, and some candy wrappers. You gotta feel for Timothy Fitzwater's family and friends a little bit here because it's not something anybody wants to endure after recently losing a loved one or a friend, so that's a bit of a bummer, but moving on. So, they had the who. Tim Fitzwater was the body in the car. Now why? Not surprisingly, old Jerry was nowhere to be found. A little poking around town, and uh, investigators did get pointed in the direction of Brenda, his girlfriend. So she was brought in for questioning. Now, Brenda, she was in over her head. No question there. She was a young lady, barely involved in this, but hey, she hadn't broken any laws at this point. At worst, she could be seen as a co-conspirator, but hey. You talk, you walk in this case. So, she filled in all the details. Jerry had the sense to skip town after dropping his friend Harry off at the hospital. He didn't bother going very far, though. Jerry was found 45 minutes away in Morgantown at the Double Decker Saloon. He had dyed his hair, but they found him trying to hide in the false ceiling. Just driving off into the sunset may have been a better plan after all for the guy. His business was in trouble. His marriage had fallen apart. I just wanted a do-over, somewhere else, a new life. And he got it. Three years at state prison. He pled guilty to the account of third-degree arson, 
and he was found guilty on desecration of a body. His accomplices were charged with lesser counts. Details are a little murky as far as how that played out. One interesting tidbit, uh, it seems the 1970s crime drama Quincy helped birth the plan. Brenda told investigators as much. There was an episode called Two Sides of the Truth. It involved a rich businessman, some kind of oil tycoon, who was going to fake his own death, had a guy burned at an oil refinery that he owned, but things didn't work out too well for that businessman. Things didn't work out too well for businessman Jerry either. It's a shame he didn't bother paying attention to the end of the episode. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Sean. This is Dark Vandalia. I plan on investigating some more true crime, some folklore, some mysteries around West Virginia and the surrounding areas. So, if you like the video, click it. If you've got any good ideas for me to follow up on, leave me a comment. I've got a few things in the pipeline. We'll see how they turn out. So, till next time, I appreciate you.